This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard, friends. Good to have you with us and hope you'll stay for the, uh, the duration. So come on in, take off your jacket, sit right down, put your feet up and uh, enjoy the ride. As we roll on into the Christmas season, I hope uh, wherever you are, you are safe and warm and uh, and dry. Uh, I don't know what the uh, the weather's like where you are. Perhaps, you know, a little bit of snow would be nice before the big day. Just a little bit. Uh, as long as it clears up before, you know, we all have to hit the roads. And a lot of people traveling this time, time of year, so I, I, hope, um, I hope your traveling uh, goes well and it's safe and... Uh, uh, I know uh, uh, Tim, my producer in the other uh, in the other room there, is uh, is off to Japan for the Christmas holidays, and then uh, when you're away, I'll be in Los Angeles, uh, leaving next Sunday, uh, taping more more interviews for the uh, the television show, season three of the Conspiracy Show. In fact, my guest uh, is going to join me here in just a moment. Uh, I'm going to uh, join her up in uh, Northern California, up in the Bay Area, and talk about what we're talking about tonight on the radio. Uh, we're going to. Um, we're also going to talk about it on the television uh, for season three. Uh, in any event, so when I'm away in LA, and then you're off to Japan, and then when I come back, my old producer, my very first producer here uh, at the uh, the flagship station of our little burgeoning network here at AM seven forty in Toronto, uh, Dan Ellison will be sitting in for you, Tim. So it'll be uh, and and Tim just got back from or uh, Dan just got back from I don't know where he was. He was he went off on the road to find himself. He was replaced by Dave Griffin, who went off to Kathmandu. Now you're going to Japan. <laughs> it's, hey, I'd love to have your frequent flyer miles. That's all I can say. Uh, as long as we can fly, that's the thing. How long is it before they're going to clamp down and prevent us from flying? They're they're really trying to make it difficult as it is. But uh, if you go to the website, richardserrett.com, where you can tra- where you can uh, find out everything there is to know about The Conspiracy Show. But at richardserrett.com, I've posted a story. Uh, it's uh, Agenda 21, what you need to know about UN's global sustainable development plan. There's a buzzword or a buzz phrase we're all familiar with, right? Sustainable development. Well, 
uh, I've linked up to a story here. It's quite a nice one by uh, Judy McLeod, who writes for Canada Free Press. Every household, she says, should serve up a sizable portion of Agenda 21 and what's it and what it's all about with the turkey and stuffing this Christmas. There's no better time than Christmas to reflect on your life and where loss of individual freedom is taking modern society. You don't have to go to university to become a graduate of all things Agenda 21. The only university courses on the subject are administered by the UN University of Peace in sunny Costa Rica. All you have to do is Google the United Nations and sustainable development for a chilling check on reality. While dinner's cooking, take your school-aged children outside and show them the innocuous-looking wireless smart meter attached to the outside of your house. That wireless device is a mechanism by which your local utilities commission, get this, under complete control of the UN, knows your every move right down to how many people are in your place of dwelling. Phony pirates like Johnny Depp are only the stuff of silly movies. Teach your children non-Hollywood truth. Real-life cutthroat pirates caruse the UN. And she goes on to describe um, all about uh, what this UN Agenda 21 is all about. Everything from from uh, smart meters uh, to... Um, uh, it's going to impact on every aspect of our life. And this is all coming out of the UN spearheaded back in the early 90s by President George Walker Bush. Herbert Walker Bush, I should say. Well, we're going to delve into Agenda 21 right now, and we're going to find out how this action plan to inventory and control all of the land, all of our water, our minerals, our plants, animals, construction, all means of production, information, energy, all human beings in the world, and these terms like sustainability and smart growth and high-density urban mixed-use development all comes from this UN Agenda 21. And while the UN insists it's voluntary, my guest says that's not true. We're being lied to. We're being manipulated. Rosa Corey is a forensic commercial real estate appraiser specializing in eminent domain valuation. Her 28-year career as an expert witness on land use has culminated in exposing the impacts of sustainable, sustainable development on private property rights and individual liberty. In 2005, she was elected to a Citizens Oversight Committee in Santa Rosa, Northern California, to review a proposed 1,300-acre redevelopment project in which 10,000 people live and work. Her research into the documents justifying the plans led her with her partner, to challenge the fraudulent basis for the huge gateway redevelopment project. The city, in an attempt to block Corey from Rose, Rosa Corey from exposing the project, removed the neighborhood in which Corey and her partner's properties were lo uh, located from the redevelopment area. She is the author of Behind the Green Mask, UN Agenda 21. Great pleasure to welcome Rosa Corey to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Rosa. Hi, thanks for having me. In a nutshell, Agenda 21, coming out of the United Nations, what is it all about? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you, uh, you laid it out. Uh, as, you know, as I do say on my website, it is, uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy fact. It is the action plan, the blueprint, to inventory and control 
all aspects of human interaction with the environment, including uh, all aspects of uh, land use, uh, water, minerals, plants, animals, education, information, construction, means of production, uh, and information, including every way that human beings uh, touch the planet. This is an inventory and control plan, and it is not some dusty old plan that has no impact on you. It is having an impact on you no matter where you live in the world. It was signed on to Agenda 21. is uh, called Agenda 21 because it's the agenda for the 21st century. That's what the UN called it. And it was signed on to by 179 uh, world leaders, including, as you said, George H.W. Bush and Brian Mulroney, um, in 1992. And it was brought back into our nations. It is a non-binding agreement, but because our countries implemented it, in our, we have implemented this in our countries. And so it is binding on us because it is national. Uh, these are national laws rules, regulations, ordinances, and acts that implement, uh, are implementing Agenda 21 right now. And mainly you see it as land use plans, but you also see it as controls on water and energy, your educational system, food production. It, impl- it impacts every part of your life, including domestic surveillance. I mentioned the smart meters off the top. That might be the most visible aspect of these, because anyone can go outside their house here in Ontario right now and look at these smart meters. I don't know if you have them in California. Oh, sure. Okay, Mm -hmm. so how do these smart meters figure into Agenda 21? Well, when you think about what, what, uh, this is, we're talking about globalization here, and globalization is the standardization of systems, because as I say, you can't control what you can't, what you don't inventory. If you can't, if you don't know what you have, you can't control it. So this is an inventory plan and then a control plan. So smart meters, and you have smart meters not just on your electrical meter or your gas meter, but they are metering water as well. So uh, when you have smart meters on your uh, water and your energy, um, this is a centralized control that is a smart grid that goes It's not just in Canada or the United States, it's all around the world. Um, I've seen smart meters in rural Mexico. Uh, there are, this is what this is, is a way to monitor, control, surveil, and manage all aspects of your life. And so uh, this is how it uh, ties in with smart meters because um, you have a centralized control and standardization of systems. So if you're using uh, what is perceived to be too much water, you can have your water, uh, you actually you're, you can have your water limited by your meter. You can have um, your energy limited by your meter or shut off completely by your meter without anyone coming onto your property. And this is not uh, some fantasy. This is real. This is, a, this is the way that these meters are designed. Um, regardless of whether there are any health issues related to uh, to the meters themselves, they emit really EMF. Yes, they em- they emit EMF in a pulse, right. like every was every thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. And regardless of that issue, and I think that that you know that is a concern. But what I'm talking about here is um, is something that is not. It's not. Uh, there's no issue as far as whether it's um, 
controversial or not. This is the reality. This is what these are designed to do is to shut off your ability to access your water or your power. So Agenda 21, when, that was, when, when Canada and, and the U.S. signed on, so the provincial government here where I am in Ontario, they, had, they were given their marching orders from the U.N. They had no alternative but to institute this aspect of it, uh, the smart meters. Is that right? No, that's not exactly right. Um, what it was was this is a voluntary plan. It was signed on to by your prime minister, uh, Brian Mulroney, and uh, I guess I'm saying his name right. I don't yes, know. yes, you are. And uh, in 1992, and so you know, the thing is that the people are going to look around and say, "Well, I don't see the United Nations in my neighborhood," and it's true, they're not. Uh, what you have here is a plan that, because it was adopted by your country, and because your country has made laws and rules and regulations that implement it, yes, it is binding. And that's what you see. So what the United Nations is, is a framework, it's a structure to allow for global governance. And uh, so this is, this is the goal, is ultimately, we're, and we're in it right now, we're moving steadily into a corporatocracy, a totalitarian state, global, total globalization, and uh, concentration of power uh, in, a, in a very small elite. And this is the way that it happens, through land use, through control on, on our energy, and also through infiltration and control of our educational system. Rosa Corey is with us, the author of Behind the Green Mask, UN Agenda 21. We'll open up the phone lines. You have questions and comments. This is something you need to know about. The UN's Global Sustainable Development Plan. How will it affect you? We'll find out more on the other side. When the Conspiracy Show continues, don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Rosa Corey is with us uh, behind the green mask, UN Agenda 21. And Rosa, I was on your website, Democrats Against UN Agenda 21. And, and what I, the takeaway there for me was the UN is at war with, with North America. They don't like the fact that we have single-family homes. They don't like the fact that we have our own cars. They don't like our, uh, our air conditioning. They don't like the fact that we eat meat. They think we're, our th- we're dangerous. We're a threat to the planet. Is that right? Um, yeah, but it's not just North America. What this is is that the middle-class lifestyle is considered to be unsustainable. You know, everyone thinks they know what sustainable development is. You know, it's like we've all heard this term now, but that comes from the United Nations. In 1987, the Brutland Commission, the UN uh, World Commission on Environment and Development, uh, said that um, sustainable development was a development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So, of course, then they immediately determine that, yes, everything we're doing now does compromise the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And what were they going to do about it? And this is the action plan. Agenda 21 is the action plan. And they consider to be unsustainable uh, single-family residences, private vehicles, appliances, meat-eating. You know, this is the... And, you know, basically, this is the middle-class lifestyle that many people around the world aspire to. But this is considered to be unsustainable. And so when you have um, 
identification of uh, your homes, your private single-family homes as being unsustainable, that is then the justification for smart growth, high-density development in these city centers and the Wildlands Project, which is to move people out of the rural and suburban areas and into the city centers. This plan is is basically an ultra-urbanization plan. It's a war on rural areas, and it involves subsidies for development of high-density transit-oriented development in cities. And this is where a lot of your money is going to be going, is into these for-profit developments that are built by private developers for they're building the hardscape for your future poverty. Rosa, here's the thing. Now, I consider myself to be, you know, kind of a rugged individualist. But some of these things, on a certain level, make sense. I mean, I'm for, you know, greater... um, um, greater density in, in the urban centers with, you know, uh, access to good transit and so forth. I mean, I, 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 I think that urban sprawl really is kind of a blight. Uh, I like, I, I love New York City for that very reason. You know, it's all, it's all contained on an island and, and uh, great, great density and so forth and all the amenities that that provides, as long as it's voluntary. That's the problem, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I, I agree. Of course, some people really love city living. I also have lived in high-density areas in San Francisco and really have enjoyed it. Um, it's difficult if you want to have a dog or you have children or you have, you know, other, you know, your, let's say your sax player or whatever. You want to smoke. You can't smoke in your apartment. There are many areas now that have outlawed smoking in your condo or your apartment, um, you, you know, in your own unit. So uh, this, what, what this is, you know, of course, if you want to live in a high-density development, that's great. But what's happening is that your property tax and your transportation tax dollars are going to subsidize these developments. And this is what's happening, is that uh, through uh, sustainable communities strategy grants, through um, many regional planning grants that are coming down through federal governments, including in Canada, um, you're finding that uh, money is being diverted into these plans. And these are basically crony developer developments that, um, and, you know, projects that uh, benefit specific individuals but have sort of a veneer of uh, environmental concern. This is the hijacking of the environmental movement. So they want, they want to herd us in, like cattle into the cities where we can be, uh, we can be surveilled, uh, we can be controlled. Now, how do they want to? How do they want to limit our mobility? I mean, I was mentioning off the top how you know it seems to me that they're they're trying to make it as difficult as they as they can for us to fly anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but how else are they? Uh, this under Agenda Twenty One, are they attempting to limit our mobility? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what you'll see, of course, is vehicle miles traveled taxes, which uh, involves putting a GPS device on your private car and charging you if you drive too many miles. And if you think that I'm making this up, check it out. Vehicle miles traveled taxes. This is coming your way. Um, another thing is to take your, tra- your transportation tax dollars and basically sink them into a hole called uh, high uh, high speed transit, high speed rail. This is a designed to fail. We don't have high speed rail in the United States. I don't believe you have it in Canada. No. Although, and uh, it's very very expensive. And this is a plan that um, is being pushed heavily. It will divert a huge amount of our uh, of our transportation tax dollars. And you have to remember, this plan is about Agenda 21. is about destroying your 
um, your independence. It's about creating total dependence on government. And uh, it's about loss of sovereignty. It's about the, um, law, the erasure of jurisdictional boundaries and the loss of individual sovereignty. So um, you may have, uh, for instance, the North American Union, uh, which is being facilitated by non-governmental organizations through um, uh, alliances and through uh, basically groups that will go around the treaty process so that it's not necessary to have a treaty. It's just agreements that are made by private groups that eventually will influence government enough that we won't have separate um, separate boundaries. Now, these uh, this Agenda 21, as I understand it, goes by many different names because it's being implemented at the local level. So if someone were to, let's say they're concerned about this after hearing the show or after reading your book, Behind the Green Mask, and they want to find out to what extent it's in it's already taking place in their community. Let's say they they call the uh, the, the, the city hall and they say, "Oh, well, we don't know anything about Agenda 21." Mm-hmm. What are some of the other names it may be hiding under? Mm-hmm. You'll never see it called Agenda 21, and that's how your uh, government can say that you're crazy and you're making it up and you're a conspiracy theorist, right? Um, you know, it's only just recently that the government even acknowledges our governments even acknowledge that Agenda 21 exists and that they signed it. And even now you will find that they don't wish to do that. But so what you're going to see, let's, uh, for instance, let's say you're in Calgary. You're going to see the Calgary Regional Partnership Land Use Vision of 2007. That's 18 municipalities. Uh, this is a regional vision. If you're in New York State, you'll see Plan New York City 2030, Long Island 2035, You'll see um, Vision 2020, Sustainable New York, Connecticut. Um, You're going to see huge groups of municipalities, um, 37 municipalities in New York um, uh, that join together. You're going to have large groups of uh, cities and counties joining together as regions that are going to basically uh, create these regional boards that you don't elect. So what this does is it destroys your ability to influence through your government. You don't have representational government then, and you have lost your regional, your, your, uh, your, your boundaries. This is what it does, is it erases your jurisdictional boundaries. So then they create sort of a, a parallel government that is regional, and that is the stepping stone to, uh, to globalization because that erases boundaries, and that's what globalization is all about. How are they going to... I mean, let's face it, since the um, sort of the start of the Industrial Revolution, you know, in, in North America going back more than 150 years, people have started to, to move off the farms and into the city, and that's escalated, obviously. Now the family farm is pretty well done. But for those people that are still sort of clinging to that rural life, how are they going to coerce them into the cities? Are they just going to stop maintaining their roads or providing services? How are they going to do it? Mm-hmm. Well, that is one way. Uh, what you'll see is, uh, for instance, um, if you're in a rural area, you'll see that uh, your rural roads will not be maintained. Your rural post offices will be closed. Your rural schools will be closed. Uh, services basically will be ended out in your area. And uh, then what happens then is that infrastructure can't be supported out there. Less and less people are able to live in those areas. Um, you have uh, people who can't get their goods to market. Um, and then you have vehicle miles travel taxes that are going to tax you if you're driving a long distance. Uh, 
and people gradually will begin to come into the cities. And then um, there's less money out there to maintain whatever infrastructure is left. And this is how it's done. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, you may think, you know, you know water well monitoring is one way they do it as well. You know, you may think that you're out there, you're self-sufficient, and then someone comes out from your government and says that they're going to put a meter on your water well and restrict your use of water. How can they do, how can they come onto private property uh, and put a, I mean, the smart meter goes right up on your, on, on your house in many mm-hmm. instances. How can they do that legally? Yeah, well, you know, you have basically an easement uh, on your property for the utility if you look at your deed. And uh, that's what they're saying, you know, that they basically have the right to, you know, to utilize that easement and come onto your property. What's necessary to do is to object, to, re- to reject smart meters and object as a group. So you want to go to your local, you know, whatever you're, whether you're in a city or county or whatever, wherever you are, you want to get down there, you want to make a lot of noise and say you do not want smart meters. And, um, you know, if you're like, uh, like us in California, we have opted out, we have to pay to not have a smart meter on our property that supposedly is to have it monitored, uh, you know, have someone come out and read it. But uh, you can do that. And if you don't have that option, you should demand that option because we want to block this as long as we possibly can. Rosa Corey is with us. Behind the Green Mask, UN Agenda 21, and the website is Democrats Against UN Agenda 21. Now, um, Rosa, this, as, they're, as they're herding people out of the rural areas into, this, into the major urban centers, and, and uh, you, you, I believe you call it stack-and-pack housing mm-hmm. uh, and, and restricting our mobility and creating these regional governments without representation. What are they going to do with this vast, these vast areas that are being abandoned? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, remember, they're not really being abandoned. Take, control is being taken of these areas through uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, land trusts, and your government. So, uh, for instance, um, if you want to take a look at our website, um, we have uh, the North American Wildways on there, which is from the Wildlands Network. And they show, and that's actually in my book, too, um, they show uh, the, it's incredible the amount of area. In fact, most of Canada is in this thing called the Arctic Boreal uh, which is a wild way, and the spine of the continent, which goes from Central America all the way up into Alaska, runs right through the middle uh, of uh, western middle of the United States, right up into uh, Canada. These are the wild ways. The spine of the continent initiative is part of uh, a plan to actually remove human beings from this huge swath that includes portions of many states and uh, huge portions of uh, Alberta and BC and up into the Yukon. This is the uh, Yukon to Yellowstone plan. So the plan is to uh, basically move human beings out of these so-called wilderness areas and allow them to be uh, to be wild as they had as they were, you know, prior to human beings being on the planet. And this is the um, you know, this is the story. This is the green mask. That's why I call my book Behind the Green Mask. You know, because this is the idea is that you're going to be, you know, so cool. You're going to release this land to the animals. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's interesting. If you look at the the um, the lineage of a lot of these uh, environmental movements, 
you scratch beneath the surface. Let's look at the World Wildlife Fund, uh, for mm -hmm. example, which was founded by uh, uh, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who was a former SS officer, and of course Prince Philip, who once said that if he was reincarnated, he'd like to come back as a deadly human virus. These are not nice people behind these yeah. movements. <laughs> I know, that's great. Can you imagine? <laughs> he actually was recorded saying that. Yeah, so, and, and th so the idea then is that uh, human beings are a blight on the planet and should be removed. But really what this is about is about taking control of uh, land, water, oil and gas, timber, uh, and moving that out of uh, single individual's property, you know, property ownership. This is about transfer of property ownership from private ownership to public and ultimately then to, uh, to the non-governmental organizations. Well, here but in Canada, own... it's the crown, right? The queen, she yeah. owns it. Right, yeah, you have crown land there. And I think it isn't something like 89% of Canada is uh, crown land or federal land. Yes, I mean, you, so... if you look on your deed, unless you specifically... Uh, you know, alter your your deed when you I guess you buy your property. The the mineral rights and everything do not belong to you underneath underneath your house. Mm -hmm. You don't even own your house. You're, you've got a long term lease. I mean, you, it's all the Queen's land. It's all Crown land. Anyway, Rosa, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll continue to delve into Agenda Twenty One. This is this is a nightmare, folks. Stay tuned. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And uh, Rosa Corey is with us behind the green mask. We're talking about Agenda 21. And I was reading of, of Forbes magazine, Rosa, and they were talking about these um, uh, land barons, uh, people like uh, media moguls like John Malone and Ted Turner uh, and, and billionaire Stan Kroenke. Uh, I mean, these three individuals alone own nearly 10 million acres. They are the largest individual landowners uh, in the United States. Now, the thing is, I recall Ted Turner talking about, you know, wanting to, uh, before he dies, he's going he's gonna to donate the bulk of his uh, estate to the United Nations. I'm wondering, I mean, is, is he part of this rewilding program to turn over this land? He's buying up ranch land? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. It's funny because Ted Turner, he's all about, uh, you know, there's too many people. And, uh, you know, he was, I think he was talking about cannibalism at one point. Uh, he has five kids himself. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, these people are all hypocrites. That has nothing to do with it, right, as far as they're concerned. He's doing, uh, he's releasing wild carnivores uh, into, onto his land, wolves, bears, um, and this is something that you're seeing, you know, more and more wild carnivores coming into um, cities and, and uh, populated areas because, uh, you know, this is the idea is to bring back um, carnivores uh, into the wild. And so you're seeing this with, especially with property owners who have large tracts of land who are, um, you know, buying into this philosophy because the idea is to get people out of those areas as much as possible. And animals, you know, don't, have, don't know where the boundaries are. So, uh, for instance, you know, I want to refer to this one thing. That's, um, it's called Two Countries, One Forest. It's uh, the United States and Canada, five states, four provinces, up in the northern Appalachians and uh, in eastern Canada. It's 80 million acres. And um, this is, you know, the idea is that this is, you know, this is going to be sort of a, a large area that is protected for animals. And um, 
the world the world resources institute has something called the global forest watch where they have a nasa satellite go over every 16 days and um and what this does is it identifies every single tree not just identifies that the tree exists but identifies the species of the tree as well so when you have a conservation easement over your property um or restrictions on what you can do on your property this is land that's being surveilled from the air through a NASA satellite uh, every 16 days. So um, this is part of, uh, you know, large landowners are giving huge amounts of money to non-governmental organizations like World Wildlife Fund and Natural Resources Defense Council and are regulating um, the, uh, the way that land is being used and who uh, is going to be able to use it. Once they herd everyone into the cities, and, and, and if they're doing away with uh, a lot of these, you know, the, the family farm and so forth, how, how are the people in the cities going to be fed? Uh, is that where the GMOs come in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, well, you know, if you really start looking into this and you, you look at food sheds, uh, which is um, something I talk about in my book as well, uh, the idea of, you know, this go local thing, it sounds so cool. Go local. Of course you want to go local, right? Who doesn't want to buy local food? But uh, the idea ultimately is that if you can't get it locally, you're not going to be eating it. So uh, if you can't grow it in what's called a food shed, um, which is an area that is uh, within, let's say, 100 miles of your, um, your high-density urban uh, transit village, then you don't get to eat it. And then ultimately you would uh, imagine, extrapolate from that, that, um, that if you can't get enough food for, you know, let's say you figure uh, 2,000 calories a person, that would determine the population, allowable population of that transit village area. And uh, this is something, I'm, I'm not making this up. If you go take a look at um, Cornell University and food sheds, you'll see this. Um, so one of the things that, of course, you're going to see as well as in terms of food is that um, if you can't uh, get access to it locally, then you're not going to have it. So they're talking about vertical farms, and that basically means you'll be farming in a parking garage, you know, a structure, um, and they haven't figured out how to get enough light into the center of those, of those structures, but that's the concept. So you're, you know, and think about the mold and all that. But that's the idea: is to uh, everyone being self-sufficient. This is the concept. You know, the sort of all of these totalitarian plans require, um, you know, the vision of the glorious future. They also require uh, the Spartan present, austerity measures now. But they have the vision of the glorious future, and that is, you know, that is what all of this is predicated on. Starting to sound a lot like Soylent Green, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, so <laughs> this, so you, men- you mentioned the austerity measures, and and so is is the economic. Well, uh, I hear the music uh, uh, creeping up here, so we'll get to this when we come back. But I want you to, to talk about this when we come back, Rosa. This current economic uh, downturn is that by design? Is that part of sort of acclimatizing us for the for the lean years that are coming? this uh, a permanent depression perhaps we'll get to that as we continue to discuss agenda 21 what you need to know about the un's global development sustainable development plan uh, with rosie corey back with more you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 
Welcome back. Rosa Corey is with us behind the Green Mask, UN Agenda 21. Uh, before we get to that economic question and whether this, this current downturn, uh, this uh, prolonged recession, uh, is part of Agenda 21, and in other words, was it engineered? Let's get to the phones. Rudy has been patient and is waiting uh, on the line from Toronto. Rudy, welcome to The hello, Conspiracy hello. Show. Yes. Go ahead. Hi there. Thank you. Hi. Well, environmentalists and, and animal rights people, they care about the planet, and there's always some, some people trying to say they have a hidden agenda. Well, they don't. If the UN recognizes the damage that the humans have done to the planet, then that's a good thing. And animals are coming into our cities be, because we are uh, encroaching on, onto their territory. We're leaving less and less room for them. So what's wrong with having safe corridors for, for animals to live in? Mm-hmm. Well, that's... Okay, that's a nice idea. Safe corridors is great. I don't know if you've taken a look at the North American Wildways Project, but that is roughly two-thirds of Canada, uh, most of the west coast of, Cal- of the United States, down through the central spine of the U.S., and then on the eastern part of the United States and Canada as well. So what we're talking about here is not just you know leaving some area for animals. What we're talking about is putting human beings in tightly controlled very small, high-density uh, megacities. This is the plan, is to move people out of rural and suburban areas into high-density areas where their mobility will be restricted. This is not really about uh, making it so that Bambi and Bambo can get together. This is really about restricting our ability to move freely through our world. And this is also to, um, to be able to... Um, make it so that surveillance is more efficient. And this is part of the plan, is to surveil, manage, and monitor human beings. So, yeah, you know, this, if, this has a green face. If it didn't, you would never be going for it. All right, Rudy, um, welcome, thanks for the call. Let's go to Brampton now, and Brampton, Ontario, and say hello to Beverly. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Beverly. Hello. Hi there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I believe in this agenda. Twenty-one. It has been happening for a long while now, because in Jamaica, my grandparents they live like far out in the rural, and some people came in and took them out of their land, and put them in the town. So this thing has been happening for a long while now. Are you concerned about it, Beverly? Yeah, I am concerned. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's already uh, she's already uh, experienced this uh, firsthand in in places like Jamaica. People being mm-hmm. forcibly removed. I mean, is that? St- I mean, that happens. I'm guessing uh, in in uh, let's say the developing world far more than we realize. Well, one reason why you'll see that is because carbon sinks are uh, are being developed in the third world, second world uh, areas, developing world areas. These are these are uh, essentially forests that are being planted or uh, lands that are so-called being conserved that actually have people living on them that are who are being forcibly removed in order to create these um, these multi-billion dollar areas that are considered to be carbon sinks and then they can uh, on carbon trading uh, on carbon exchanges uh, these can be traded uh, shares in these can be traded in order to offset um, pollution in, develop, in developed and developing nations. So I have seen this, uh, you know, recorded. In fact, if you go to the New York Times and put in Uganda, Uganda and um, carbon sinks, you'll find an article about a whole, whole villages that are being burned down so that uh, uh, forests could be built for created for um, for carbon sinks. 
So this is something that's going on any time that you see um, huge corporations involved in trading of uh, carbon credits. You're going to see abuses of rural people. Yeah, it seems like they're, what this, what's behind this is, um, again, it's maybe under the auspices of the UN, but you have certain very powerful individuals, maybe the, you might find them at a Bilderberg meeting, who want to institute a new feudal society yes. so that uh, the plebes will be, uh, will be living in these ghettos. Uh, and meanwhile, they'll have these vast, you know, uh, um, tracts of land where they, uh, you know, they can do their hunting and fishing and, uh, uh, you know, just back in it, as it was during the medieval times. And if one of the plebes got caught, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, hunting on the uh, on the Lord's land, <laughs> there was hell to pay. Is that what they want? A new feudal society? Yeah, that's actually what I call it, is neo-feudalism. And uh, this is an engineered economic collapse because the goal is to create total dependence on government and ultimately to have the governments themselves, local and uh, county uh, and provincial governments, to be dependent on federal uh, funds. And by, uh, by that I mean when you have sustainable community strategy grants and regional planning grants that are coming down from your uh, federal government, then they are dictating uh, how development will happen in cities and, uh, and county areas. And this, this is part of the goal, is to create total dependence so that all of these, uh, these grants are, you know, these cities and counties are desperate for funds. So they will go along when they're required to have, for instance, uh, priority development areas or um, urban growth boundaries. Now, you know, what we're talking about here is costing billions of dollars in implementation. And uh, it's not that I'm against uh, the idea of high-density development, as I said. What I'm talking about is that your tax dollars are going to subsidize this, and this money is being diverted to uh, public-private partnerships, where your government is actually, uh, you are actually underwriting projects that are hugely expensive and have very little uh, relationship with what the market demand is. And so um, this is how the markets are collapsed, and this is what's happened to us. We are in a depression. I believe so. <laughs> I believe so. I think, yeah, I think uh, were it not for... Uh... Uh, you know, certain certain programs that are now in place. I mean, things would be are, are far worse than they would be during the depression in terms of the of the of the numbers of uh, unemployed mm-hmm. and chronically underemployed. Uh, Jerry is in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the conspiracy show, Jerry. Oh yeah. Very well, thank you. You wanted to talk about electricity monopolies. Yeah, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, they have uh, about uh, over forty different electric companies, and. Uh, and, and you're supposed to pick the uh, person with the cheapest rates, and it, it, it gets real confusing when when there's so many electric companies fighting for the uh, for for one per, one customer. You know what I'm saying? So, are you saying that you would welcome something like Agenda 21? Uh, no. I'm not quite sure what your point is, Jerry. Um. The, the monopolies make it make it that 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 if you if you want the, the electricity is actually higher higher in price because of the monopolies. Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm seeing with uh, with electricity um, is that you have uh, community aggregate community choice aggregation, which uh, is coming your way, which means that your local government goes into the power business. 
and either subsidizes uh, solar or wind, and uh, ha- there are no limits on what they can charge you for that. The Department of Energy in the United States wants 20% wind energy by 2030, and there are, they have an aggressive renewables plan. So, uh, and by 2011, only about 3% of total electricity was uh, from wind, for instance. So there's huge cash grants. Uh, going and billions and billions of dollars in tax credits. And this is another way that, uh, you know, obviously they confuse the consumer. Uh, we have situations where, uh, in fact, your renewables are not really, uh, you, let's say you're selling back to the power grid, you're not actually using your own power. And um, it's very hard to establish yourself as being off the grid now. And this is something that is being used as a manipulation because power is a huge amount of, uh, there's a huge amount of money and power and a huge amount of subsidies that are your tax dollars going to uh, a few producers who are making a huge amount of money on this. Uh, someone came up to my mother-in-law's house and wanted to rent her roof uh, to put a, a solar panel on there to sell it back to the utility. And they're getting grants from the government to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of schemes out there now. It's sort of the new little... The thing that, uh, you know, that I think is really fascinating is carbon credits because uh, you have manufacturers that are earning huge, you know, millions of dollars by churning out uh, uh, gases, uh, harmful uh, greenhouse gases, so they can be paid to destroy the uh, waste byproduct. They're cashing in on carbon credits, and that's something that China is doing. And so, you know, this is this is something we're seeing with cap and trade, uh, you know, the transition, uh, the, the, the monetization of carbon uh, and restrictions on use. And this is, you know, all these things sound good, but really when you look behind it, what it is is it's a green mask and it's being used to, um, to create this uh, crashed economy that we're all living with. Let's get uh, Sandy in here. Sandy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Where are you calling from? Calling from Toronto, thank you very much. All right, go ahead, please. Yeah, uh, just listen to it. I've been studying uh, these things for a number of years, a number of decades. I've also lived in community up in the somewhat north of Toronto here, and now I'm back in the city in a transition period in my life, and I'm just uh, asking some really tough questions, uh, doing some studying of propaganda and talking to people, and I'm into organic gardening myself. So I'm just wondering, Rosa and uh, Richard there, what would be some of the ways to stem the tide, and if you're going to leave the uh, uh, city, where can we go to be involved with other people that are like-minded in community. This is a great mm-hmm. point to sort of leave uh, to leave off on, uh, Roses. How do we fight this? You you say we are the resistance. So how do we resist? Yeah, and I you know I'd love to really address that uh, that question more because I'll tell you there is no safe place. There is nowhere to go. You stay and fight where you are. And uh, you know if you're thinking of going out into the country and being able to establish yourself there, I'm telling you you are going to have a target on you if you're in the rural and suburban areas. So the thing that we want to do now, and uh, I do have about 20 pages in my book. It's a short book on what you can do. So awareness is the first step in the resistance, and you are the resistance. So you want to educate yourself. We have flyers on our websites that you can print out. They're two-sided flyers and distribute. You want to don't hand them to people. You want to put them on doorsteps early in the morning. You can get a hundred of them out in about an hour. Uh, you want to get this information to people. Um, there's no white horse. No hero is going to come along for you. So you want to dominate government meetings, video government meetings. When you go to um, 
government meetings for uh, regional plants where they ask you to come on down and give your opinion on this cool new plan in the center of our town. That is a Delphi meeting. It is designed, it's a mind control meeting designed to direct you to a predetermined outcome. You want to refuse to comply with that, and we show you how to anti-Delphi a meeting. You want to speak out at your professional organizations, attorneys, architects, appraisers, realtors. You want to not comply with Agenda 21. You want to expose collaborators, and you need to get more information. I can't, you know, this is, there's a lot of great information out there. We invite you to check out our website, which is DemocratsAgendaAgenda21.com. It's a nonpartisan fight. It's, uh, you know, this is something that freedom is totally nonpartisan. This is a worldwide fight. You want to withdraw your financial support from non-governmental organizations. If you're volunteering uh, for nonprofits, you need to find out who they are, who they're be- who's behind them, whether they support sustainable development, and whether they understand what they're doing. Um, colleges, universities, your educational system is imbued with us from pre-kindergarten to post-grad. You want to call it out. You want to defend and support others who are losing their land to regulations and restrictions, and you want to educate your elected officials. You want to assist people in being able to refuse federal grants because they have been indoctrinated by the American Planning Association and other associations that are telling them that we are conspiracy theorists. That is not true. This is not a theory. This is real. And we are fighting this all over the world. We will win, but we need to get everybody on board together, working together to stop United Nations Agenda 21 sustainable development. Rosa, thank you again. The website is DemocratsAgainstUNAgenda21.com. I've linked up to it on my website, richardserrett.com. I look forward to uh, meeting you up in the Bay Area uh, in the uh, next week or so, and um, we'll talk about this for the TV show as well. Rosa, great pleasure. Thanks so much. I had a great time. Thank you. Rosa Corey, Behind the Green Mask. And the website here, www.richardserrett.com. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hello, radio friends and family. Welcome aboard The Conspiracy Show. It's, uh, we're nicely into the Christmas season, so, uh, you know, it, it, what happens during the Christmas season, of course, people flying off in all uh, directions, madly off in all directions. Tim, I know you're going to Japan, you're flying to Japan, my producer on the other side of the glass, uh, to spend some, uh, some time with your girlfriend's family. And I'm off to, uh, to L.A. next Sunday, uh, working uh, steadily still on season three of the Conspiracy Show television program. We'll have an announcement soon when that's finally going to air. It's been kind of a long gestation period, but it's going to be worth it. We've got some great episodes for you, uh, for you uh, fans of the television program. And uh, then the following week, uh, in a couple of weeks, my old producer, my very first producer here at AM740, where we do the, uh, our sort of our, uh, our flagship station here in uh, Toronto, Dan Ellison is coming back. 
uh, that was like three producers ago. Tim, you're my fourth producer in just over three years. <laughs> anyway, uh, people coming and going, but uh, great to have you aboard. And I don't know if it's snowing where you are, if you're in the Christmas mood, but uh, nevertheless, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the best of the holiday season. Uh, you know, we're going uh, to talk the paranormal over the next hour, but we're going to sort of cover off both ends of the spectrum. A little bit later, uh, my good friend Bob Curran, uh, from uh, Northern Ireland will drop by to talk about American vampires. <laughs> What's Christmas without vampires, Tim? I mean, seriously. American vampires, though, as opposed to their um, Eastern European sort of uh, uh, nobility uh, uh, cousins. They're always, you know, counts and barons over in, uh, in uh, Romania, but when you get to the uh, get to the states, they're just angst-ridden teens. That's the type of garden variety vampire you have over here. Anyway, my next guest, or my first guest, actually, no stranger to uh, the vampire beat. But tonight, we're going to cover off something a little more in tune with the Christmas season. We're going to talk angels, and she's written a major tome on this subject, uh, the Encyclopedia of Angels, which is. I'm not sure how many printings it's uh, into now. Uh, probably a half dozen or so. We'll find out. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator extraordinaire, joins me the second Sunday of every month, and she's here now to talk angels. Rosemary, how are you? Hello, Richard. I'm doing quite well. And I just have to chuckle at uh, having vampires and angels on one of your Christmas programs. I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, after you've suffered the vampires, you can call on the angels for help. That's right. Well, listen, you know, when you mentioned to me uh, uh, earlier in the week that you wanted to talk about angels, I pulled off uh, the shelf your Encyclopedia of Angels. I have your second edition. And um, uh, how did you get for interested in angels, first of all? Angels were actually one of the first kinds of paranormal experiences I had when I was a kid. And uh, I often felt surrounded by angels when I played or uh, when I was going to sleep at night. And I knew they had wings and they could sing very prettily and I could hear them sing. And I thought everybody experienced angels. Uh, but children often have uh, a lot of experiences that they they think happen to everyone, and when they get older, they discover that um, uh, they're rather unique. Uh, and, of course, as a lot of people get older, the experiences they had as a kid sort of fade away. For mine, uh, for me, rather, I was very intrigued by the paranormal. I loved the mystery of the unknown and the unseen. And as I got older, I really wanted to... Um, find out more about angels and who who are they really and and do they really uh, appear to children uh, do they really help people solve their problems and crises uh, deliver messages from God uh, and they are real I I've had many angel experiences since then it's interesting though Rosemary because as you describe in uh, the introduction to your, your Encyclopedia of Angels, you, growing up you had no particular religious upbringing, no indoctrination. And so it's, you know, for, for someone like yourself to have an encounter with angels, rather interesting. You know, they're deeply ingrained in our culture. And, uh, of course, when I was a kid at Christmas time, uh, I loved all the trappings of Christmas. And you get out the decorations with the angels and... You sing Christmas carols uh, about angels, so they're they're part of life. And um, uh, it's true, I didn't have any strong religious um, training, 
uh, I was raised a Methodist, and my parents sent me to Sunday school. And Same here, that's... Methodist, United Church, we called it up there. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a good background to have because um, it enabled me to feel free to explore. I didn't have a lot of um, strong um, education about, uh, you know, beliefs that uh, were and were not possible. And uh, Methodism enabled me to expand quite a bit. And, and I ultimately felt that Christianity could not answer all of my spiritual questions and needs. In fact, there really wasn't any faith on the planet that I thought uh, provided adequate answers to everything for everyone. And what, what, did these encounters with angels continue throughout your life? Do you continue to see angels? Uh, yes. And in fact, the more, uh, after I got older, and I really started pursuing my studies on the paranormal uh, as a young adult, the more I went into all aspects of the paranormal, the more experiences I had. I was very open, and I also uh, took a lot of training in how to develop my psychic abilities as well. And I think when you focus your attention on, on something like this, it attracts to you uh, those very things. So my inquiries about angels and my desire to know them and know more about them literally brought more angels into my life. And and what did they look like? When what I mean, you mentioned that they you know they they had wings and they had beautiful voices. Were they male, female? Were they androgynous? What were, were what did they look like? The experiences that I had when I got older, none of them have had wings. And in fact, most of the people I've interviewed uh, about their experiences, the angels are more like pillars of light. And that's how I experienced them, whether I sensed them uh, and could see them with the inner eye or whether I had visual experiences. Um, it's a very intense light, and when I've seen them visually, the light is so bright that I can't even look at it directly. You have to avert your, your eye uh, and sort of see them out, out of your peripheral vision. Uh, and... Um, uh, even though it did not have a human shape, um, I knew they were angels, and people know that, that they know that this is some sort of divine being. Uh, and if it communicates telepathically, um, you know, they will, they will announce themselves. They will give a name. And you know that they are angels and why they are making themselves present. Well, our biblical ancestors had a much different uh, attitude toward angels. They were definitely God's messengers and would take prayers to God and bring the answers back. But they were also God's disciplinarians. Yes, people. And, I mean, they were. They, people were in fear. I mean, if oh, an angel, you an angel appeared before you and you trembled. Absolutely, because uh, you just felt that well, God's unhappy with me, and now He sent uh, an angel to take me to task. Uh, and today, uh, we have a much different attitude. If an angel appears, it's a good thing. It's, uh, it's help. Angels are very important uh, to our spiritual understanding. They really help connect us to the divine, which is very abstract and in many respects unknowable. But angels, who we consider to be in our likeness or similar to us, uh, we can relate to them. And uh, so they are a way for us to, to know the divine better. And every culture has them, they, whether they're called angels, which 
are unique to the um, Judeo-Christian and, and Islamic faiths. They're called something else, you know, another name in, in uh, other traditions, but their function remains the same. And is there a hierarchy, uh, as was, was sort of explained to me in my, during my uh, catechism, uh, into the Orthodox faith? Is there like, you know, you have the seraphim and, and um, different levels of angels? I do believe there is, and in fact, we've always experienced angels that way. Uh, the ancients considered the earth to be a microcosm of the macrocosm, so things, uh, things in heaven are mirrored on, on earth, and what goes on on earth is mirrored in heaven. Uh, so if we have hierarchies and organizations and governments and that sort of thing on earth, uh, we've always expected the heavenly realms, the cosmos, to be organized the same way. Now, the nine-tier system that most people are familiar with, the, the angels, the archangels, the powers, virtues, and, and so on, uh, that's only one of many systems. There have been other hierarchies uh, that were conceived uh, even in ancient times, and uh, they were the product of visionary experiences. So ultimately, do we know which hierarchy is the right one, so to speak? They're probably all right in some way because they are the product of, of visionary experiences and our attempts as human beings to uh, organize our experiences and make sense of them. But bottom line is, yes, there does seem to be differentiations in the angels and um, their interests in the earth and the things that they are concerned with. The beings that we consider to be so very powerful, the angels themselves, are actually at uh, the lowest level of the tier. And the ones at the highest level, and actually it makes quite a bit of sense, are very close to God, and their purpose is oriented toward um, uh, singing the praises of God, holding the cosmic energy together through divine love. Do you think uh, there's a connection? with things on a much higher sphere. Sure. Is there a connection? Oh, I, I want to ask you about it, if there's a possible connection between the UFO phenomena and angels, because, um, you know, some people have, uh, who've had an encounter with uh, ETs or, or UFOs, seem to be describing, um, in my mind anyway, uh, you know, they describe these Nordic-looking, um, almost human-type uh, figures. To me, these sound like angels. What do you think? There's quite a bit of similarity. And, in fact, I think this shows our attempts at labeling um, perhaps even the same kind of experience. You know, we have these extraordinary experiences with beings that are quite real and very profound, and then we have to make sense out of them. So we do it the best way we can according to our time and place and culture. But a few years ago, I actually did an informal but very interesting experiment with a psychologist friend of mine. Uh, we were both officers in the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And uh, I had noticed in the dream literature um, descriptions of both ETs and angels that sounded the same. So how, how would you know whether you were having a, an encounter with ETs or with angels? So I did a deeper study on it from, from extending beyond dreams into the encounter literature in general. And uh, I found that if you, if you took out the labels, E.T. or angel, and you asked people to identify the kind of being somebody was having a dream about or an experience with, uh, 
um, you got both answers. That, uh, you know, people evaluated what they were reading uh, against their what they were familiar with. Right, superimposing and, uh, their own... So uh, one could be transposed over the other. So how, how do you make uh, some sort of sense of that? It certainly doesn't negate either one, e- either ETs or angels, uh, just that there are beings uh, that we come into contact with who have um, forms of light or are very bright, uh, humanoid but very bright, and they come uh, in mysterious ways and for the purpose of helping people. Uh, so I think we have a lot of extraordinary assistance out there, however it comes and however we label it. They certainly would all be considered part of God's plan. And, of course, uh, at Christmas time, uh, we like to think that we're um, sort of in closer connection with, uh, with angels. And, and uh, who, whoever's out there listening, uh, I, I hope and pray that you will, uh, you'll uh, be speaking with your angel over this uh, Christmas, blessed Christmas season and uh, Hanukkah season. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And uh, the Encyclopedia of Angels, available to uh, book buyers at Amazon and uh, good bookstores everywhere. And my website, visionaryliving.com, has some articles about angels as well. Excellent. Well, we'll direct people there. Merry Christmas, Rosemary. Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. Look forward to seeing you again in the new year. Absolutely. Looking forward to it as well. All right, back with uh, American Vampires, their true bloody history from New York to California when The Conspiracy Show continues. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. And as I said uh, before the break, we're moving from angels to vampires, complete opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, But, uh, and what better time to talk about vampires than Christmas, am I right? Well, perhaps not. But, uh, you know, there's no accounting for the timing in the, uh, the book publishing industry. However... Delighted to ha- to have uh, Dr. Bob Curran on the program live from County Down in Northern Ireland, well versed in the legend of the vampire. Uh, he, uh, after leaving school at fourteen, he worked in a number of jobs, including uh, a, a grave digger, uh, which perhaps uh, led uh, him in his uh, led him to his uh, current literary career. Uh, aside from digging graves, he worked as a lorry driver, a professional musician, a journalist, even wrote for uh, stand-up comedians traveled extensively, uh, later went to the university, uh, um, uh, went to university, rather, where he obtained a degree in education, history, uh, and uh, still teaches um, now and again. But his uh, impressive list of books, uh, my gosh, it goes on and on and on here, but uh, a couple of the, uh, the more popular titles, Bloody Irish, Great Irish Vampire Stories, The Truth About the Leprechaun, Celtic Lore and Legend, Meet the Gods, Heroes, Kings, Fairies, Monsters, and Ghosts of Yore, Vampires, again, a field guide to the creatures that stalk the night. Encyclopedia of the Undead, a field guide to creatures that cannot rest in peace. And uh, Zombies, a field guide to the Walking Dead. And his latest, as I mentioned, is entitled American Vampires, Their Bloody True History from New York to California, Dr. Bob Curran. Dr. Bob Curran, how are you, my friend? How are you, Richard? How are things in Toronto? Uh, as I was saying earlier, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we don't traditionally associate uh, the holiday season with vampires. Nevertheless, you've written this beautiful uh, 
tome, a blood-splattered uh, epic here entitled American Vampires, Their True Bloody History from New York to California, which is interesting that you're bringing it to the Western, uh, to the New World, because we associate vampires traditionally, you know, going back to Bram Stoker and so forth, with Eastern European noblemen in black capes and, and, so, and so forth. So why did you decide to, f- to, f- to focus on North, the North American uh, species, if I can use that term. <laughs> okay, Richard, you have touched uh, slightly on the reasons why. Because we begin to think of vampires as, as you say, uh, noblemen and black capes and with pale faces somewhere in Eastern Europe, or angst-ridden teenagers uh, somewhere in uh, Middle America. But what I wanted to do was begin to look at the cultural background to some of the vampires. Uh, not all vampires are, are, are noblemen, and not all vampires are young, angst-ridden teenagers. So what I wanted to do was look at uh, vampire, a wide spectrum of vampires, because vampires come in all shapes and sizes, depending on the culture in which they originate. And where better than where many cultures have fused together? Uh, you have Native American, you have uh, Scots-Irish, uh, you have uh, Creole, you have French, you have Dutch, all Italian, all coming together in a sort of uh, rich uh, cultural stew, if I can use that phrase. And where better to do that than in America? So what I wanted to look at was uh, how vampires are different in various parts of America and look at the wide spectrum. Because Dutch vampires on the East Coast are different from Spanish vampires on the West Coast. And uh, perhaps Scots-Irish traditional vampires uh, in uh, North Carolina and Goa vampires in South Carolina, because North Carolina and South Carolina uh, vampires are completely different. So America. Uh, so that gives me a bit of space to work. And uh, whenever I fired the book off, I said, Here, here's a book. And the publisher said, we will do it and we will release it for Halloween. So that's what they have done. And uh, so even uh, for the undead, America is a melting pot. Oh, very much so, because, uh, as I say, uh, the cultures have influenced uh, the horrors that we experience. Um, For example, as I've already said, uh, North Carolina is different from, let's say, South Carolina, because the culture is different. The Appalachian Mountains and uh, and through uh, some of the mountains in North Carolina have been settled by Ulster Scots uh, or Scots-Irish settlers, people who came from my part of the world and from Scotland, uh, uh, and settled uh, all through the mountains, and they brought their own nightmares with them. For instance, uh, you will find... um, Something like uh, a vampire whale. Now, not all vampires, of course, are human uh, in, in either shape or in 
literature. So you have, for example, a vampire well, which actually comes from my part of the world. We have what are called over here famine wells. Hmm. Now these are, let's say, wells which people have drunk from during the Great Famine of um, 1846 to 1852. Uh, and if you drink from them, they will draw the good from you rather than you drawing the water in. Uh, and uh, so that's part of the culture of, uh, uh, of the Scots-Irish. Now, the subtitle of the book, uh, Bob, "True Bloody Their True Bloody History, From New York to California. When you say their true bloody history, are you suggesting some vampires may not be uh, human? In other words, those people who like to, to pretend that they're vampires, vampire cults, that there actually may be real paranormal uh, type vampires? Well, the vampire is Richard. Whatever way uh, you want to, uh, to look at it, the vampire is the embodiment of uh, some of our fears. The vampire uh, is uh, the fear of what happens to us after death, for example. Can we survive? Do we come back? And if so, in what form? And uh, if we do, how do we keep, uh, how do we uh, survive? Uh, and that varies from culture to culture. Now, uh, there are people, certainly, who um, place themselves into cults or imagine themselves uh, to be blood-drinking vampires. Now, that is how they deal with the world around them. Uh, culture, but what I'm looking at in the book is a cultural background where uh, the peoples have settled in various parts of the world. And that's why I've thrown in the word history, because uh, the, uh, people have settled, uh, and various uh, types of people have settled all over America. And that's why I chose America, because it's such a rich melting pot. Uh, people have settled all over America from various cultural backgrounds, groups of people, uh, and they have brought their horrors and nightmares with them, and uh, these uh, translate into American lore and um, American tradition and American folklore. Uh, to what extent um, was the vampire in North America uh, used, I guess, as as an explanation or a metaphor for the spread of disease, things like tuberculosis? That is a very good point, Richard, because, uh, for example, uh, if I were to ask you the vampire capital of America, you would you might say New York, you might say California. Uh, I would tend to say that it was the smallest state. It was Providence uh, or it was Rhode Island and uh, around Providence and places like that. Uh, and those were areas where disease spread quickly among col uh, incomers and colonists and people like that. Uh, and it became interpreted. Uh, the notion of the vampire uh, serves to some extent in a cultural context as an interpretation for what's happening to the community. So if people go down, and you're quite right to identify tuberculosis, because tuberculosis uh, gives the impression of a, marble, a white marble skin, uh, you may cough up blood when you sleep, so you have blood around your uh, your mouth, and uh, you 
I may uh, experience the sensation of a weight on your chest as your uh, lungs uh, try to cope uh, with breathing. Uh, and this gives the impression that something has been in your bedroom, that something has climbed on your chest, and that something has uh, dropped blood around your mouth or whatever. Uh, and so vampirism, particularly in the New England colonies, where disease such as tuberculosis, cholera, and places and sicknesses uh, like that were commonplace, served as a um, explanation for the spread of disease. And we have the ideas of the vampire ladies of uh, Rhode Island, uh, which uh, extend back uh, from the 1700s right up until uh, the end of the 1800s, uh, with Nelly, uh, the last one being Nellie Vaughan, uh, uh, and then Vermont and uh, in Connecticut. What kind of, uh, I mean, was it, was there any sort of similarity or parallels to the witch trials uh, that took place in terms of this paranoia and people would suspect someone of being a vampire? Yeah, uh, not so much in America, Richard, but certainly that was always the case in Europe. And um, when uh, disease struck, uh, even in, uh, in the early colonies in, in America on the East Coast, people began to look around uh, for uh, some sort of scapegoat. People said, why is this happening to us? Is there some sort of monster? And out of European lore, they began to identify monsters uh, among themselves, whether uh, these were witches or vampires. Now, in places like New Mexico and uh, some of the southwestern states, uh, there is very little differentiation between witches and vampires. In fact, in these places and among the Native American peoples of Arizona, uh, witches and vampires tend to be something the same. And in order to be a vampire, you do not necessarily have to be dead. Oh, that's you interesting. You can be a witch. And uh, by day, and you can be a vampire by night. All you have to do, Richard, is open up your skin, and a ball of light comes out. Now, the ball of light is the vampire. That doesn't necessarily drink blood. That drinks energy by a form of osmosis, so it can hover outside your house, and as they say, uh, it can draw the good from the house or from the family within. That's interesting. Bob, listen, we'll take a time out. Uh, I think a lot of us are, are familiar with uh, the concept of energy vampires. Some of them, some of us may even have some in our family. But uh, <laughs> Bob Curran is on the line. Uh, we'll uh, talk about American vampires when The Conspiracy Show continues. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
And we are back with uh, Dr. Bob Curran. He visits the Louisiana bayous, the back streets of New York City, the hills of Tennessee, the Sierras of California, the deserts of Arizona, and uh, many more locations in a bid to track down the vampire creatures that lurk there. It's all in his new book, American Vampires, Their True Bloody History from New York to California. Just in time for Christmas, you've all got a goth uh, who's you know expecting something under the tree this year. <laughs> so uh, there you go. So we're talking about, this is fascinating. I didn't realize that that, um, uh, according to the lore, even if you are not dead, you could be a vampire. And you were describing uh, a witch. They would open up their skin uh, yeah. and let out this ball of energy. And that ball of energy was a vampire. That's true, because not all, all, all vampires are human. But uh, they can actually draw, uh, even in human form. Uh, it was thought among, uh, let's say, the Navajo, that uh, they could draw energy from uh, people with whom they were sitting or with whom they were eating or with whom they were working. Uh, and maybe, Richard, you have experienced people, um, the concept uh, of energy vampires is well known, but maybe you have experienced people with whom you are working uh, who left you incredibly tired and um, listless. Oh, yes. Yeah, if you like. uh, now, I would say these people are very, uh, I couldn't say these people are very boring, but but um, there was a belief among certain people that uh, these people could, even almost unconsciously, draw the energy from you and uh, reinvigorate themselves, if you wanted. And uh, certainly this was part of uh, witchcraft in the Southwest and um, among uh, some of the Native American peoples. Um, where vampires went about and drew a leeched off uh, other members of their community or people whom they encountered. Now, it's interesting, when uh, going back to um, a point we made earlier on how the vampire in Eastern Europe has been associated with noblemen, part of that was sort of transplanted in America, too. You talk about in Massachusetts how the vampire is associated with class and social status. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. Um, perhaps not in the question of nobility, as we, as we think uh, of in Eastern Europe, but perhaps uh, in a, a, a division between those who have and those who may have less. For example, in Cape Ann, uh, on the Massachusetts uh, coastline, as you quite rightly say, uh, near the settlement of Gloucester, uh, there was uh, an element um, uh, or a settlement which was known as Dogtown. Uh, now, the name Dogtown uh, appears in, in a number of small settlements all over the West and, uh, and all in a sort of deprecatory fashion. And this was the case in Cape Ann, where uh, 
they were rather colourful and eccentric people. Many were the widows of uh, Gloucester fishermen uh, who had died at sea. Others were people who had fallen on hard times. And uh, the community was divided simply between the people in Gloucester, the rich merchants of Gloucester, if you like, down, uh, down in, in, in the town, and Dogtown, which was up on the heights, which was full of, as it was thought, ne'er-do-wells and um, vagabonds and people who were of lesser social status than those. And um, th there were uh, people, uh, and they're mentioned in the book, who had uh, from time to time uh, very uh, strange-looking teeth, very long teeth. And uh, it, it was simply a physical characteristic. But they became acquainted with uh, blood drinkers. That uh, um, up in Dogtown there was nothing but witchcraft, and and the old women, and some of the old women survived by telling fortunes. Some of them uh, survived uh, by uh, giving out love charms and stuff like that. So, uh, Dogtown, because of its low social status, became equated with witchcraft and with evil doing and with uh, people with long teeth. And there were several uh, of them because uh, there was a rather eccentric dentist up there who pulled uh, uh, Captain John Morgan Stanley, uh, who uh, pulled teeth uh, very strangely. Um, and uh, they became acquainted with vampires, and it was thought that uh, some of them travelled about at night uh, in the guise of bats and the birds, and drank from the, the uh, decent, upstanding, uh, socially better off people in Gloucester and around the Cape uh, and uh, Headland. That's why Governor so, Romney. That's why Governor Romney looked so pale during the campaign. You may know that. I may know that, but I couldn't possibly come. <laughs> Let me, t Bob. Let's take a time out. We'll come back. Uh, more questions for Bob Curran as we discuss American vampires here in the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. We're back for a few minutes uh, with Bob Curran. The book is American Vampires, and uh, it's their true bloody history from New York to California. Uh, you know, you're um, in describing those people that were accused of, uh, of being vampires. It obviously leads to the, the whole discussion, uh, the idea of the vampire um, based on the concept of difference. So if an, an outsider, for example, would, would be more inclined, I guess, to be in other parts of the country, perhaps considered or, or accused of being a vampire. Is that true? Did it play off on, on ethnic differences and, and uh, the outsiders? Absolutely. Uh, not only uh, in America, Richard, but also elsewhere. Uh, the vampire became almost the embodiment of something which was uh, created difficulties in the community. We, we 
we talked earlier about disease coming through places like uh, Rhode Island, uh, through Massachusetts, through Vermont, uh, and people looked around for uh, for a reason for that, and more importantly, somebody to blame for that, which by uh, explaining it, they could do something about it. So you're quite right. Uh, the uh, outsider becomes uh, uh, the scapegoat. For instance, uh, taking a European um, uh, example, in Albania, uh, the uh, anyone who has even eaten Turkish food can become a vampire because the Turks uh, occupied Albania during the time of the Ottoman Empire uh, and were hated. So anyone who has relations with a Turk, who has eaten Turkish food, uh, who has washed in the same water as a Turk or something, will become a vampire. So, uh, uh, and if you look at a famous book like Dracula, you will see all the difficulties which faced a community. Uh, for instance, uh, Stoker being an Irishman, uh, we're looking at the difficulties which faced the Irish community in the late 1800s, the, the idea of nobility, which is where we get the idea of the nobles, because there was uh, differences between uh, the working class and the nobility of the time. Uh, you had um, the land question in Ireland, because uh, Dracula had to sleep in his own earth, and uh, uh, Ireland at the time was undergoing difficulties with uh, the ownership of land, Irish land for Irish people, um, and you had the difficulties with women and, uh, uh, dare I say, Americans. So you find all those in, in a book like Dracula. I read Dracula as an Irish novel rather than as a horror novel, and you'll get uh, you'll get another layer of it. So uh, the vampire becomes the embodiment of the difficulties of a community wherever they are. Uh, America had many scattered communities, had many diverse communities, and the vampires became scattered and became diverse in nature. So what do you make, uh, uh, Bob, uh, studying this this social phenomena, the evolution of the vampire, and how it's now being portrayed in Hollywood? And initially, of course, we had vampires that were associated with disease, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, 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 and pure evil, obviously. I mean, Dracula was, although there was a, you know, a, a sort of a romantic component to it, but, but yeah. mainly it was he was an evil entity. And now Hollywood has turned this on its... Everyone, you know, young girls now, they want to date vampires. What do you make That's of this? That's right. And, and uh, young uh, men want to dress up as vampires and uh, pale their faces, if you like, and become... Uh, it becomes almost a romantic ideal. It becomes a notion uh, of... Because there is, uh, as well as that, and we haven't touched on this, Richard, there is also an erotic component in that. And this uh, may translate itself into the modern world, where young girls are very good-looking and our vampires are, and young men are very good-looking and uh, are vampires. And so the watered-down erotic component, which uh, it certainly is in Dracula, because uh, if you think of it, Richard, uh, no 
vampire would uh, actually kiss you on the neck and bite into your jugular vein because if they did they would make one heck of a mess <laughs> and uh, you would die instantly because the, that, that's a main artery right, right. Uh, that, that you're biting into but it gives uh, through Hollywood the idea of the erotic component the, the, the wonderful kiss which uh, women fall immediately under the spell of the vampire or whatever in, in, in an erotic way. So uh, you have that component as well. Uh, and I think this is now coming to the fore, albeit in a slightly watered down where uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of the Twilight films or my daughter goes to them religiously. But um, uh, young, I'm told that uh, young women fall under the spell of some uh, uh, acnid young hunk. Um, uh, and uh, this uh, is translated into some form of teenage angst. So uh, it's now coming almost. Um, this element is now coming almost to the fore in uh, um, vampire fiction and films. Well, I, I, granted, there was there were vestiges of that in in even Bram Stoker's Dracula. But but how what does that say about a society that we now romanticize, uh, dare I say, even um, a worship? Uh, these, if you're a young girl, these these vampire characters in Hollywood films. What does that say about us as a society? Because I personally find it a little disturbing. I find it disturbing myself, and I, and I think actually, Richard, it takes away from uh, the uh, the core of the vampire myth. Uh, the vampire myth is made up of a whole number of elements, and we, and we have talked about some of them. Uh, firstly, it, ex- uh, it seeks to explain uh, wh- why certain things are happening. It, ser- uh, it uh, serves to objectify, because then you can say, this is what's happening, uh, this is what's causing it, therefore uh, we can do something about it. Uh, uh, and the vampire, though, you can go to the cemetery, as is, uh, if you're reading the book in New England, they did and dig up uh, the corpses and pour vinegar into uh, the cavity of their heart. Um, uh, so it objectifies. Uh, uh, it, it, it also unites the community together against that. Uh, but there are other uh, elements, as and we've talked about some of them, uh, of difficulty within the community, things like that, and uh, such as social status, social class, things like that. And as I say, what is now happening is that one element, uh, which is, I suppose, to appeal to young boys and young girls uh, has been taken out of that and has been uh, almost amplified, if you like, through the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, through the Twilight films, and I believe there are other books coming out along those lines. So they're concentrating on one aspect, but the vampire as a whole is a much, much more complex entity. Uh, it reflects also, and we have uh, we've talked about this, the cultural values of a community. Uh, 
And this is what I've been trying to do in the book. I'm trying to get the vampire back to its core values and back to basics. Well, and yeah, I think you've done that quite nicely in American Vampires, uh, which it's complete with uh, some pretty... Uh, well, some of the vampire illustrations in here are some of these vampires are quite attractive, but for the most part, uh, <laughs> they're, they're they're suitably hideous. <laughs> well, we, we had talked about it, Ian. Uh, once again, it's Ian Daniels and Ian and I are old friends, and we had talked about it. Um, uh, uh, and uh, he said, "Well, uh, what do you think of vampires?" And because uh, he's been drawing a lot of uh, very uh, fairy-like women, I, he, he did some of the other books on on fairies. And I said, "Let's keep them hideous uh, because they were terrifying." Remember. Uh, Richard, that you have settlers in uh, a new place in America, uh, 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 set in small communities against forests, against um, mountains, against raging floods, uh, on uh, deserts and prairies, and uh, they're trying to uh, to keep together against an unknown world. Uh, their culture binds them together, but so do their nightmares. And it's an interesting thought that the things which we find positive bind us together, but also so, so do the things which terrify us. So as a community, we come closer together because we're frightened of what might be out there. Congratulations, uh, Bob, on American Vampires, their true bloody history from New York to California. And as always, a pleasure visiting with you. And a pleasure to talk to you, Richard, and can I wish you and yours and all your listeners a very happy Christmas. And a happy Christmas to you, my friend. All right. All right, that's it for me this week on The Conspiracy Show. Great to have you aboard. Hope you'll join me next week when uh, we'll uh, talk to a filmmaker as a, uh, um, a, a shocking, uh, very controversial new documentary out called uh, American Empire. And I uh, can't wait to talk to Patria Patrick. Uh, I'll be doing the show live from L.A. And um, uh, we'll be sure to, uh, to run into some very interesting people out there while I'm filming some more episodes for Season 3 of The Conspiracy Show. I will have an announcement soon when you can finally see Season 3. In the meantime, thanks to Tim Spreen for production. Have a good trip to uh, Japan. I'll see you when I get back. And uh, again, all of you are listening at home, Dr. Bob Curran and uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, thank you. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.